This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. It is very frightening not to be able to breathe. He was poisoned by Russian intelligence on orders from the Kremlin. The heart begins to race. Uh, and I began to vomit violently and sweat all over the place. And and this happens really quickly. Within minutes, I was on the floor not being able to move. Russian opposition leader Vladimir Karamurza was poisoned, not just once, but twice. This was excruciatingly painful. But he survived twice. And he tells us what he went through, what Alexei Navalny is going through, and why the Kremlin keeps ordering these poisonings. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. You probably have heard the story about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny being poisoned by Russian intelligence twice and his survival twice. But with all that's gone on in this case since August, since it happened, it's important to remember another name. Vladimir Karamurza. He's a Russian opposition politician and vice president of the Free Russia Foundation. He was poisoned twice as well and survived both times just like Navalny. Karamurza has been instrumental in making the Kremlin pay for this kind of heinous behavior and he knows a lot about their motivations, tactics, and just how ruthless they can be. We spoke to him exclusively on this podcast, and just a warning, some of what you hear might be disturbing. Vladimir, one of the things that is most remarkable about your life is that you have survived two attempts to poison you by Russian intelligence or Russian operatives. I'd like to talk to you a bit about that today. And the first thing I'd like to ask you is, what can you tell us, what do you remember from that first poisoning? Well, actually, both times were remarkably similar. So presumably they've used uh, the same or at least a similar type of toxin. Uh, Both times this was in Moscow. Uh, The first time in May of 2015, the second time in February uh, of 2017. Uh, Both times I was with other people. Otherwise, I would not be sitting here and speaking with you because this this happened so quickly with the onset of symptoms that the incapacitation comes really fast. So I was saved, among other things, by the fact that there were people with me who were able to call the ambulance straight away. But the the way the symptoms began, both times, the first uh, sort of uh, instance was uh, inability to breathe. And I have to tell you, it is very frightening not to be able to breathe. Yes. Uh, When you're trying to... You know, make that movement that all of us human beings make every few seconds to take in the air and you feel that no air is coming in. You feel that you're suffocating and then the heart begins to race uh, and I began to vomit violently and sweat all over the place. And and this happens really quickly within minutes. I was on the floor not being able to move. And 
while while I was still conscious, uh, while I was still conscious, this was excruciatingly painful to experience. I think that's actually one of the reasons uh, the Kremlin and its security services like this method so much because uh, uh, it is a sadistic method. Uh, it inflicts suffering, among other things. Um, then I lost my consciousness. I went into a coma. Both times I was in a coma with a multiple organ failure, uh, and both times uh, doctors told my wife that I had about a 5% chance uh, to live. Mm -hmm. So no words can express how grateful I feel to be able to well, sit here and speak with you now. Uh, the official diagnosis given to me uh, in the Moscow hospital was, and I quote, toxic effect by an unidentified substance, end of quote, uh, which you know translated from medical jargon into plain human language uh, means poisoning, and they do not know with what. Yeah. And nobody believed that. They didn't believe it either because they knew it wasn't true. I'm certain of it. But um, so... You survived both of these uh, situations, and you have continued to do the work that you're doing, which is remarkable. You have seen the situation with Alexander, uh, sorry, with uh, Alexei Navalny take place twice as well. Yeah. Your organization is out front trying to demand that an investigation take place. Was there an investigation in your situation? No, and there still isn't one to this day. So both times uh, after the poisonings, after both poisonings, my lawyer and I uh, went to the investigative committee in Moscow, which is the Russian equivalent of, of the FBI, so the main law enforcement agency, uh, to request a criminal investigation into attempted murder. Uh, to this day, I have not yet received a response, which is actually uh, uh, astonishing for anybody who knows Russian bureaucracy, because of course we do not have rule of law in Russia, but we do have a very ornate bureaucratic system. And you know, to any request uh, you make, uh, you do receive uh, sometimes a very lengthy and complex written response. I mean, most often it would be meaningless, but it would be something put on paper. And in my case, uh, it was nothing, and it is nothing to this day. Um, I cannot say I'm surprised by the fact that while uh, the Putin regime was in power, the Russian uh, law enforcement agencies are not investigating attacks on opposition leaders. Look, five and a half years ago, in February of 2015, Russian opposition leader and former deputy prime minister Boris Nemtsov was literally gunned down yes. in front of the Kremlin wall. This was the most high-profile political assassination in the modern history of Russia. And to this day, beyond the lowest level of the hired guns, the perpetrators, nobody Nobody among the organizers or masterminds has faced any responsibility, has been brought to justice, and all these people continue to be shielded and protected on the highest levels of the Russian government. So I was not, I cannot say that I'm surprised by the fact that the Russian investigative committee uh, did not even pretend to investigate uh, two of my poisonings. I am surprised, however, uh, by the behavior of the U.S. Justice Department, uh, because uh, after the second poisoning in February of 2017, my wife managed to get a, a blood sample uh, and she took it to uh, Washington, to the FBI, for testing at the FBI's uh, toxicology lab in Quantico, Virginia, which is supposed to be among the top toxicological labs in the world. Uh, they took the sample, uh, they tested it, maybe or presumably found something, and then they classified the results. 
they refused to release them to me. Uh, I'll remind you, we're talking about my own blood test results. They refused to release them to me. They refused to release them to members of Congress, including the late Senator John McCain, who had requested them. Uh, they refused to release them to media organizations that tried to get them through the Freedom of Information Act. And so um, earlier this year, uh, I had no other choice uh, but to uh, file a lawsuit against uh, the United States Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., through my American lawyer, uh, Stephen Rademacher, whom I am deeply grateful to and really fortunate uh, for having worked on my case completely pro bono. He took it on as a public service because he's as outraged as anybody by this. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we received the first batch of uh, the documents, about 240 pages out of the 1500. But the most important part of this, the actual lab test results, uh, which I needed in the first place, will be withheld by the Department of Justice until November the 16th. Of course, I'm hoping that then they will have to turn them over. The difference, I sort of drew this uh, line of comparison, which I do not like doing. I never usually compare anything that happens in democracies like the United States and what happens in authoritarian regimes, such as Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia. So, uh, uh, but, but this sort of compares the two situations. But of course, the big difference is that unlike in Vladimir Putin's Russia, the United States of America has an independent and genuine judicial system. And so because of the lawsuit, uh, I will eventually get this information. But I must say that I'm, that I'm absolutely astonished uh, and, 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 and to be frank, uh, lost as to yeah. why the United States Department of Justice would want to withhold this information. Well, I can tell you, Mr. Karamuza, that one of the things that's taking place in this country at this very moment is a collective scratching of the heads uh, over this situation, because this is not something that the U.S. is known for. It's not something that people are used to. But the exact scenario that you have laid out is is underway. There are questions about our government and questions about how it's working and organizations within this government that have responsibilities have uh, been questioned about why they haven't fulfilled them or why they have taken a certain tact in terms of dealing with what's going on. And, you know, one of the things that hasn't happened here is nobody's been able to get to the bottom of why this is taking place at this point, just as you have not been able to get to the bottom of, I believe, the poisonings in your case. Did you, were you able to track down or figure out who poisoned you? Well, in the sort of large sense of your question, I never had any doubt who poisoned me. I have absolutely no doubt that both yeah, of these I, I poisonings mean, uh, I mean the were intended to kill uh, and that they were both uh, uh, directed uh, from the current Russian authorities and then they were uh, perpetrated by people connected to the Russian security services. Because as we know, this particular method, the poisoning with some sophisticated uh, and powerful toxins, I mean, it's not some stuff you can go and buy in a pharmacy or in a market. It's only something that government operatives have access to. And we know that the, the Soviet and later Russian security services have used this method going back decades. Yeah. Um, but and I think in particular, actually, to, sorry, to continue answering this, I think, uh, uh, so, so this was obviously retribution for my work in the, in the Russian anti-Putin opposition, but I think more specifically, this was retribution for my long-time involvement in the international campaign for accountability uh, for human rights abuses in the form of targeted sanctions that are being implemented in Western democracies. I've had the honor to uh, to work together with uh, Boris Nemtsov, the late Russian opposition leader, to help convince the United States Congress uh, a decade ago now 
to pass the Magnitsky Act, which was the law that imposed targeted sanctions in the form of visa bans and asset freezes against Putin regime officials complicit in human rights abuses. Since then, this law has been made global, so it now applies to human rights violators, whichever country they may come from. Six countries, uh, as of this moment, have passed uh, the Magnitsky legislation. Uh, and two weeks ago, I was uh, in Berlin uh, to join members of the German Bundestag for the announcement of an introduction of a draft Magnitsky law in the German parliament. So uh, this process is continuing. I think this is uh, a very powerful and very effective tool of accountability for human rights abusers. Uh, Boris Nemtsov called the Magnitsky Act the most pro-Russian law ever passed in a foreign country because it is the law that goes after individually goes after the people who abuse the rights of Russian citizens and who steal the money of Russian taxpayers. Uh, I'm proud to be involved in this work. But of course, if you are somebody who is sitting in the Kremlin today, uh, if you form part of the closest circle of Vladimir Putin, whose whole raison d'etre is to steal in Russia and then go and spend that money in the West, because we know that all their bank accounts are in the West, their second homes are in the West, their wives and mistresses are in the West, and so on and so forth. There is nothing that they hate or fear more uh, than these targeted uh, Western sanctions. So I have absolutely no doubt that both uh, of the poisonings uh, that I was subjected to uh, were a retribution for my work on the Magnitsky sanctions. Okay. Now, looking at uh, the Navalny situation, do you see any differences between what happened to him, what we know about what happened to him? I actually see some striking similarities. And to be honest, I relived this horrible groundhog day, as it were, when 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 it was announced that he was poisoned on, on the 20th of August uh, on a plane from Siberia, because the, the symptoms from what I could see and read, uh, as they were reported, were strikingly similar to, to what I had experienced. And then the whole medical picture with the coma and the partial organ failure and all the rest of it, and the way that he is recovering. Thankfully, he is recovering. Thankfully, he has survived, just as I have. It's going to be a long and difficult road to recovery, I mentioned that one of the reasons I think the Kremlin likes this method, method so much, the poisoning method, is because it's sadistic, because it's excruciatingly painful and frightening to have to live through this. And if you're fortunate enough to survive, as both I and Alexei Navalny have been, it then takes a long time and a lot of effort to get back to some sort of normal. I mean, I had to learn to walk again, literally, after the first poisoning, because when, when you're in a coma for such a long time, your body loses almost all of its strength. And then, of course, there are some lasting health effects for the rest of one's life. The second reason I think the Kremlin likes this method, this method so much is because they think it gives them plausible deniability. Uh, just look, every time something like this happens, every time another political opponent or independent journalist or anti-corruption activist or defector or whoever else is subjected uh, to a mysterious poisoning, um, Kremlin spokespeople, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, why are you blaming us? You know, who knows? Maybe they ate something wrong or they drank too much or, or whatever it is. And they start throwing out these crazy alternative theories, you know, to try to, to muddy the waters, to give a hundred different explanations in the hope that the truth yeah. will be lost. And this is why it's so important to pierce through yes. that plausible deniability. This is why I really need those test results yeah. out of the U.S. Justice Department. And I hope to be able to get them thanks to this lawsuit. So do you, why if this method I mean, this is, there are three people that I know of that have survived four these poisonings, and two of you have survived a collective number of four times. So why do they keep using this method? If they, if they wanted to kill you, do you think they would not do what they did with uh, Mr. Nemsoft? Or there are those who, who suggest that these Navichucks and other exotic poisonings are sending messages. What's your view on that? 
Well, there's absolutely no doubt that all of these poisonings uh, are intended to kill. In some cases, they succeed and others they don't. I mean, you, you mentioned some of the cases, uh, including, uh, fortunately for me, my own, where we have survived. I can, I can give you many more where people have not survived. You know, Yuri Shekachikhin, oh. a Russian opposition lawmaker and investigative journalist who died a horrible death in the summer of 2003 uh, in Moscow as a result of some mysterious and very strong uh, poisoning Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006, the yeah. former Russian security service operative who, who was poisoned with uh, polonium-210. And there are many, many, many other cases. Um, yes, in some, some, some of these cases, thankfully, they do not succeed. Uh, you ask, why don't they always do it uh, as they did it with Boris Nemtsov? And again, the answer is for them, plausible deniability. There is and there cannot be any plausible deniability with Boris Nemtsov, the individual who was actually convicted by a Russian court for having pulled the trigger yes. uh, in the assassination of Boris Nemtsov was a serving agent of the Russian state at the time of the murder. He was an officer in the interior ministry and he took his orders directly from the Kremlin appointed uh, head of uh, the Chechen Republic, Ramzan Kadyrov. So, I mean, the line of responsibility is obvious to everyone. And uh, earlier this year, there was an oversight report into the Nemtsov assassination uh, prepared and published by the Parliamentary Assembly of the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in, uh, in Europe, yes. of which both Russia and the United States are full members. It's a very important oversight organization. It's the world's largest uh, regional security organization, incidentally, 57 member states. They've prepared and published this oversight report into the Nemtsov of case and uh it's it's actually available online on the osc website you can if you google osc nemsov report you'll see it i mean it has everything in it it has witness testimony showing exactly when where and how vladimir putin gave the order for the assassination of boris nemsov it contains a very clear conclusion on behalf of the osce that the reason for the continuing impunity for the people who have organized and carried out this murder is not the lack of professionalism by russian security services but the lack of political will by the Russian government, which is a damning indictment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why they prefer to use poisons, because every time someone is poisoned, they pretend that they have nothing to do with this, that they cannot do this in the case of Boris Nemtsov, because everything is obvious and everything is transparent. A part of what the problem, the part of the problem that you mentioned is Russia's view or the, the Kremlin's view under the current leadership's view of the United States uh, and the West uh, and, uh, you know, it being important for them. They are expending an inordinate amount of resources, at least to, to my understanding, to uh, disrupt the U.S. election right now. What's your view on what's happening and who is running this situation right now where the U.S. is facing um, the meddling? Our U.S. intelligence community tells us pretty regularly they see these actions coming from Russia. What's your th what are your thoughts on, on, on how, how that's working and who's running it? Uh, well, one of uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, closest confidants is a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, he's actually an individual that now is pretty well known in the U.S. because he was indicted a few years ago by the U.S. Justice Department for running uh, these programs of, you know, troll factories and so on yes. around the uh, 2016 U.S. presidential election. And there were more recent reports uh, by CNN that his people have uh, set up uh, these sort of online troll factories in several African countries uh, precisely with the goal of, of trying to influence the outcome of the uh, 2020 American election. Uh, but, you know, uh, frankly, every time people talk about this, 
Um, I always uh, recall, you know, this historical anecdote how um, Al Capone, one of the most notorious mafia bosses in the history of the world, uh, was indicted by the U.S. authorities for tax evasion. That's all they could get him on, uh, even though he was, you know, responsible for the deaths of many people, for the murders, the robberies and so on. He was indicted for tax evasion because that's what they could get him on. This is sort of the case with Prigozhin. He was indicted for running, you know, internet troll factories around the U.S. Uh, election in 2016. But this is someone who has got blood up to his elbows, if not high. I mean, he's, his primary business, if we, if we can put it that way, is running uh, mercenary groups, so effectively running proxy wars on behalf of Vladimir Putin uh, in the furthest cor corners of the globe. I mean, all the way to Venezuela and Syria, uh, in Libya and Ukraine. Uh, Prigozhin, through his entities and, and through his employees, controls several African countries, for example, the Central African Republic, where two years ago, three Russian investigative journalists were murdered uh, while they were trying to investigate Prigozhin's activities in that particular country. And it's clear from publicly available information that it was Prigozhin's people who were front and center in organizing that uh, murder. And it, it was very important, actually, when recently there were two um, congressional resolutions introduced in both houses of Congress. So it is, uh, I believe it's S-Res 624 in the Senate and H-Res 996 in the House of Representatives highlighting all these malicious and malign and nefarious activities by Prigozhin and his people, including uh, the interference uh, uh, and, and attempted, you know, influencing of uh, um, the American electoral process, but so much more as well, including the murders and the mercenaries and the proxy wars. And I hope these resolutions are passed because it's, it's very important that while these people continue to enjoy brazen impunity at home in Russia while Putin remains in power, uh, it's very important to use uh, any available international avenues for accountability. Mm -hmm. uh, and those resolutions would serve as a very important avenue for such accountability, in my view. A couple of more quick questions for you, Mr. Kader Murza. Um, these situations where Russians have been murdered, um, including or have died mysteriously, are not just in Russia and in, in other places. You mentioned a Central African Republic. Uh, I, I've been following that as well. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, even here in Washington, at the DuPont Circle Hotel, Mikhail Lesson, that, you know, I've been investigating that for several years now with dead ends everywhere. Are you concerned that they are not done with you, considering the fact that you continue to speak out? And do you, are you concerned they may they may come here to try to do something? Well, first of all, I've been back home in Russia since 2018. So it's uh, for me, that would need to go far. Uh, I live in Moscow. But uh, uh, sort of to answer your, the, the substance of your question, look, I think the biggest gift uh, those of us who are opposed to Putin could give uh, to the Kremlin and, and to the Putin regime would be if we just gave up and ran. There's nothing they want more. You know, dictatorships do not defeat themselves. Autocracies do not fall on their own. Uh, it takes it takes uh, risks to 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 work against them. But you know what? We believe in Russia. We believe in our country. We believe in a better future for our country. And and I know that there are millions of people in Russia today who are fundamentally rejecting Putinism and everything it stands for, and who want Russia, to use the words of Alexei Navalny, to become a normal European country. There are many Russians who share this goal, and especially among the young generation. That is very important because that is the future. 
And for their sake, we have to continue. Yes, we know the risks. We understand the risks. Uh, it always involves risks when, when you're standing up against uh, an authoritarian system. Um, we take what precautions we can. For example, my family is not in Russia. My wife and children are outside of, of, of Russia. Uh, but again, I think it would be too much of a gift uh, from us to Putin if we just gave up and ran, and we certainly have no intention of doing that. Looking at the United States, what the U.S. is facing in terms of uh, dealing with Russia, where does it end for Putin? How does it end? What is the prescribed method to bring it to an end, whatever it is that he's engaged in, whatever it is that he is hoping to achieve? How does it end? How does the U.S., how do people like yourself end it? Well, we actually know how it's going to end because it's a scenario that um, has played out again and again in countries of the former Soviet bloc or post-communist countries in Europe. Just look at what, what happened in uh, Georgia, in Serbia, in Ukraine, in Moldova, in Armenia, and I can continue this list. You know, when citizens have no possibility to remove uh, the leadership through the ballot box, they have to eventually do it on the streets. Uh, and that is what happened in all these countries I mentioned, where you had mass peaceful street protests against these authoritarian regimes of such magnitude and of such scale that these regimes in the end were powerless to stop them. Look at what's been happening in Belarus uh, over the past few weeks, where hundreds of thousands of people have been on the streets protesting against uh, the dictator there, Alexander Lukashenko. Putin is very frightened, by the way, looking at what's happening in Belarus today, because for him, it is like a glimpse into his own future, in what may well be happening on the streets of Russian cities four years down the line in 2024, when we have the next scheduled so-called presidential election, which we know will not be free and or fair, just like all the elections we had going back 20 years since Putin came to power. And so this is the most likely scenario. It is not an ideal scenario. You know, those of us who are democratically minded uh, in, in, in Russian politics, we would much rather have a normal way of changing the government, just just as you have in your own country. Just every four years, go to the ballot and and, and vote for whoever you want to be president. You know, we, we, we haven't had that possibility for years now. Uh, and so, you know, there's this uh, sort of uh, quite a big irony, actually, in the fact that the Kremlin uh, very frequently accuses us, you know, those who are in the opposition, of trying to foment protests or foment a revolution in Russia. It's actually the exact opposite. I mean, if anybody is trying to foment a revolution. It's the people who have eliminated the possibility of changing the government through the ballot box. And that would be Vladimir Putin and his regime. So I think 2024 will be a big year in Russia. Uh, it is only Russians that can and should change the situation in our country. Uh, I'm confident this will happen. This cannot and this should not be happened. Uh, this cannot and this should not be done by anybody from the outside. Uh, but what I think uh, Russian citizens should be able to count on uh, at that important time, is support and solidarity, moral support and solidarity from the leaders of the free world. Uh, and I hope, I certainly hope that includes uh, the United States of America. Mr. Katamurza, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think is important as we discuss this? I think I'd add just one more thing, and this sort of flows in from what we've just been talking about, but also going back a little bit to the Magnitsky Act. So uh, one of the favorite uh, sort of gimmicks of the Kremlin propaganda is to try to accuse people like myself, you know, Russian opposition leaders and Russian opposition activists, of going to Western countries and meeting with Western politicians and asking for money or asking for support or asking for whatever other, you know, nonsense that these people come up with. Of course, none of that is even remotely true. It's only 
for Russians to change the situation in Russia. And that's how it's going to eventually happen. The only thing we do ask of our friends and colleagues in Western democracies is that you remain true to your own values, is that you practice what you preach and that you stop in effect supporting the Putin regime by allowing his cronies and his oligarchs and his senior official, officials to use your countries, Western countries, and your banking and financial systems as havens for their money that they are stealing from the people of Russia. This is why the Magnitsky process is so important. This is why it's so important to implement this principle that those countries that pride themselves rightly on their own domestic adherence to the norms of democracy and rule of law and respect for human rights, stop enabling and allowing people who deny those same rights to their own citizens in their own countries from coming into the West and from using your financial and banking systems, from buying homes here and so on and so forth. The doors for these crooks and these abusers should finally be closed. There is already a Magnitsky Act on the books in the United States. It has been on the books for almost eight years now. But it is important that it's implemented more rigorously, that more people are added to those sanctions lists, and that other countries that still do not have this legislation take steps to implement it. Because I think it is high time for the free world, for Western democracies to send a clear message that the crooks and the human rights abusers will no longer be welcome. Vladimir, I think that's the only thing I wanted to add. Everything else I think we went through. Yeah, Vladimir, this is brilliant. Thank you. Vladimir Karamirza, who has given us a very, very clear-eyed, blunt assessment of what we're facing, what the world is facing as a result of Kremlin aggression. We thank you for this, and uh, we'll come back to you soon. Thank you, JJ. It's good to talk to you. That's Vladimir Karamirza. He's vice president of the Free Russia Foundation, and he's also a Russian opposition politician who's been poisoned twice by the Kremlin, and he survived twice. We'll have more on this unfolding story as time passes. In the meantime, coming up in our next episode, is the U.S. Army ready to fight tonight? Oh, we would win. But General Michael Garrett, commander of U.S. Army Forces Command, says they need to do it better to meet today's challenges. Think about what's going on in uh, Iraq and uh, Syria uh, and then Afghanistan and then other parts of, of, of the Middle East, really. That's uh, every day and we're winning. Uh, you know, what I want is I want us to win uh, by even a larger margin than we're capable of today. That's coming up in our next episode of Target USA. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Please follow our podcast on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And of course, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information about national security, you can get it from Inside the Skiff. That's my newsletter. And you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. 
Este little chico pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, Armandito Cristian Perez. I had to use the real name. Why? Because now it's the podcast. From negative to positive, which you can catch on Apple Podcast, Podcast One, and Spotify. Flow to the rider. Woo! I don't even know if you know how much they play you around the world or anywhere, my brother. No matter how much bread we make, dog, we can't take it with us. No right. matter how many houses, cars, whatever we acquire, can't take it with us. With that said, anything we make is always to give back, dog. Why are we starting a podcast? Well, it's real simple. With the times that we're living in right now in the world, I think you need to be motivated, inspired, educated, aware, positive. So what I'm here is just to motivate the world and let them know when we talk, we call a spade a spade. So you're going to hear the truth. So I look forward to the podcast. I look forward to showing y'all, teaching y'all how to take it from a negative to a positive. So get ready. From negative to positive, which you can catch on Apple Podcast, Podcast One, and Spotify. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.